to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich, and I have never been more excited than I am right now to be um, across the camera from Peter Gray, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Peter Gray, correct? You can just call me Peter. <laughs> just call you Peter. Uh, Peter Gray's um, book, Free to Learn, and I also have his other new ones. You can see all my tabs here. Uh, it changed my life. And so I just want to publicly say to you, Peter, thank you. I'm sure people say it all the time, but you have changed my life. You have changed our family's life. You have changed life for our children. It's a generational impact what you have done. And I speak around the country at homeschool conferences and every single presentation I do includes your quotes and includes your book. And so your impact is just so far reaching. It's amazing how one book, can just permeate uh, so deeply. So I just wanted to um, to say thank you to you and um, to say thank you for being here. Uh, could you take a minute to introduce yourself and um, maybe tell a little bit how you came to this book here? Sure. Um, so um, I'm a research professor at Boston College. I uh, retired quite some years ago from teaching, but continue to do research and writing. <clears throat> um, I'm a, an evolutionary psychologist, which mean, <clears throat> means that I'm interested in human nature and how our nature came about by natural selection. And for many years now, I've been uh, primarily interested in um, children's nature and more specifically in the, in the natural ways that children explore and learn about the world around them. Um, uh, my research has led me to become an advocate for what I call self-directed education, where children are learning through their own initiative. Children, I'm convinced, come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves, their playfulness, their curiosity, their sociability, their desire to grow up. All of these basic drives in children, I'm convinced, were shaped by natural selection to serve the function of their education. And so I'm um, concerned that we allow children to do that. I think that we are increasingly controlling children's lives in ways that prevent them from using their natural self-educative instincts. And so I'm pretty sure that that interest crosses with your interest in children having more free time and specifically time to to play and explore outdoors. But well, we, um, our path, we landed here by accident. Um, I was planning on, we are a homeschooling family, but I was planning on being a, um, you know, a director. You know, I was planning on directing the day and filling the time. And circumstantially, we just had too many young kids at the time and I couldn't do that. And so by happenstance, by accident, by grace, you know, um, we went a different approach and out of necessity. And your book, you know, was part of our path to change our life, to feel better about what we were doing. And in the end, you know, our kids are thriving. And I think I'm so glad that our path went this way as opposed to a different way and that the resources were there from you are to, to back it, you know, to, to have an understanding of, of why stepping back 
it's sometimes better as often better for kids. So, um, okay. So this is one thing that I have been trying to wrap my brain around for a long time. Uh, one of the things that um, is at the very end of the book and just completely took me aback. This is a thing. In 1982, you had a 13 year old son who went to London for two weeks without a cell phone by himself. Right. By right. himself. Went to yeah. London. And I and I read it and I and I thought, wait, have I been missing the whole time? Is are they from London? You know, I, I'm flipping back, you know, and I, I think they're from the States. And I read it again. And you know, you said he he flew overseas by himself. He planned his trip. He earned the money when he was 12. And at age 13, all the listeners, 13, went to London all by himself for two weeks to go exploring. Can you, I just want to know all about that. <laughs> well, so, um, so he, um, first of all, let me say that at that time, I had never been to London. I had never been abroad, nor had his mother. We were kind of stay at home, stick in the mud kinds of people. I've done a lot of traveling since that time, but up to that point, we'd never gone anywhere. And uh, my son was a more kind of an adventurous type of person, and he uh, decided he wanted to go to London. I, he had good reasons for wanting to go. He was um, deeply immersed in the game Dungeons and Dragons, and as a result of that, he knew a lot about um, British history and uh, wanted to go to museums there to see some of the things that he was aware of. He wanted to see castles. He, wanted, he had certain things he wanted to do. So he approached his mother and me saying that um, he wanted, he was uh, planning, he had, by that point, at the time he approached us, he had already planned the trip. And he also he said, he, he, was he, also, he was 12 years old. Um, and, you know, we didn't have the internet at that time to do the planning. He had to sort of get books from the library or figure things out, how to, make, how to find out, you know, how you do it, how you make plane reservations, all this. He did this all by himself. Uh, even before he let us know that he was uh, planning to do this. And so um, I have to say that our major concern was the fact that he's a type one diabetic. And um, I worry about uh, anybody with uh, type one diabetes traveling alone. So that was truly our major concern. But I had to admit that he had from the age of nine when he first uh, when he, he, we first became aware of his diabetes, he had been giving himself his insulin. He'd been monitoring his diabetes very, very carefully. And so when he told us, so, so, so at first we were hesitant to let him go because of that. And he said, well, you know, I'm always going to have diabetes. And, and when I'm 18, you're not going to be able to stop me from traveling. <laughs> and so really what you're saying is that this is because of my age. And, uh, and so we kind of backed up, out on that because we recognize that regardless of his age, he, he was a very responsible person. He could take care of himself. He was going to wear his medallion that shows he's diabetic in case he had an insulin reaction or something like that. So, and then of course he, you know, he shortcut our excuse that we couldn't afford it by saying he was earned the money himself, um, which he earned uh, 
largely by working in a restaurant, you know, this was a time, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not legal for 12 year olds to work in a restaurant today. And the way he was, at first he was washing dishes, but uh, as time went on, he was out operating, he was working at the grill, you know? And so, um, so he, um, so he did this all by himself. He traveled and he also, um, in fact, I didn't learn until sometime later that he also went to Paris as part of this trip as a sort of side trip. Um, so that was, um, that was an adventure. Um, you know, I have to say at that time, it um, wasn't as odd sounding as it is today, but it was still odd sounding <laughs> to many sure, people. I sure. mean, you know, even then people raised their eyebrows about it. But, you know, if you think about it, um, it wasn't that long before that, that, you know, you'd have 12, 13 year old kids uh, crossing the ocean on a steamer, you know, yeah. uh, into the new world uh, to start their life and seek their fortune. So from from that kind of a historical perspective, it's not so terribly strange that a 12 or 13 year old would have the wherewithal to um take charge of an activity like that. It was certainly definitely a growing experience for, for him. He's since then done a lot of traveling on it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, he, you know, he's, uh, he likes to travel. He, when he can save up enough money to go someplace, he goes someplace. That's, uh, that's the nature of my son. Yeah. It started when he was young. He had that instilled in him. Yes. He wanted to see the world. It just um, is fascinating. And I have, I have thought about it so often since I read the book, you know, it's been 40 years, you know, about since 1982. And, um, you know, I remember my parents, you know, they usually listen to these. When I turned 13, <laughs> uh, I had three friends from church. They spent the night and we wanted to go to the mall by ourselves. You know, we, you know, you want to be dropped off at the sure. mall at 13 and the other girls who are 14. You know, right. so, uh, but my parents, you know, they tailed us the whole time, you know, like, like FBI agents, you know, they were always, you know, 20 steps, but, you know, if you turned around, you could see uh -huh. that's when I was 13. And, and uh, I've got it. I have a 13 year old. We just went to uh, Cedar Point, which is um, an amusement park. It's in Ohio. We went with some other families and, you know, a group of kids went off by themselves without the parents. Um and, you know, my son didn't have a phone. He's with some other kids. They had phones. They're 16. You know, he's with a group of all these kids. You know, and throughout the day, I have this angst. Like, I, you know, I wonder if they're getting enough food. And, oh, if only I could check in. And, see, you know, and I'm thinking about your book where he goes to London for two weeks. Did, did he check in? You know, you just, you dropped him off at the airport and you come back two weeks and he's got adventures to tell. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty much it. He, he, he called us once we asked him to call us at least once and I, if i remember right he did call us once to assure us that he was fine um you know that was that was back in the day when phone calls were kind of expensive <laughs> long distance calls so yeah. you know so that's uh and uh, so yeah i mean we didn't we just decided that um he, we, we we were pretty confident that he would be fine yeah, I think it's such an important story to know. I think it helps as parents now to, to take a step back and to right. check ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm being too overbearing. Um, and 
So it's it's just such an influential and impactful story. And I think one of the things that Lenore talked about was that how when, when kids do these certain things, um, you, you would tend to think that that confidence is repeatable in the same situation. So your son went to London, he could go back to London. He feels really confident about it. But what she was sort of saying is that these this confidence or the things that kids get out of these things, they show up in other areas. So she was talking about, you know, a kid that learns to cook eggs on the stove, all of a sudden is not asking for as much help tying shoes, you know, that, that type of a thing. And so I've been thinking a lot about that, how, when you kind of step back, you never know where that confidence or the things, the skill sets that they learned, where else those are going to show up and that it's so beneficial. And I think it's probably beneficial for the parents. You know, it stretches a parent a little bit, right? You become a more right. trusting, um, right. be a little more laid back, you know, go, if he can go to London, he can go down to the park, you know, or, or something like that, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This yeah, I mean, the, uh, I mean, you have to keep in mind at that time, kids were all a lot more independent than they are today. They were probably a little bit less so than when I was a kid in the 1950s, but in the you know, late 1970s, early 1980s, um, kids walked to school, they rode their bikes to school, they, they, you know, they went, they played outdoors uh, at all ages in the neighborhood without adults uh, watching them. Um, it was, a, it was a different world. And so as a consequence, children, uh, including my son, developed the sense of I can take care of myself, I can do things, I can solve problems, I can figure things out. And, we're kind of preventing that for, for children today by virtue of not allowing them to have. So if, you, if he hadn't had these little adventures, if he hadn't been able to take care of himself and go, you know, go off visiting friends by himself and, and go and uh, he would never have been able to plan a, a trip to Europe or to have the confidence that he could do that. So. I think it's important, you know what, unfortunately what happens today is so many children are so completely overprotected and then suddenly they're sent off to college. And um, at that point, even though parents are still on the phone with them a great deal and they're on the phone with their parents a great deal, there's not, there's not the same direct oversight over what they're doing. And unfortunately, a lot of kids at that age, and I'm calling them kids instead of adults, but at that age, are uh, this is their first time where there's not somebody getting them up in the morning, <laughs> telling them to do their homework, <laughs> mm -hmm. reminding them of this and that. And uh, now they're off and, uh, and aren't necessarily very good at running their own lives. Um, we're seeing a lot of that problem. Are different. Yeah. The consequences are different at that age because you, you need to be successful because right. you're, you're starting your life at that point. Right. One of the things I noticed um, as a theme through your book and, and through the, the new four books, um, Instead of this concept of substitution, you know, it's like we have substituted, I like this phrase you use, you said, um, a school centric view of development, you talk about a careerist approach to childhood. And so we've sort of substituted this, what the child is naturally wanting to do, we've substituted it with this adult direction and adult guidance. And, and you say often in your books, I was going to maybe read a little um, a little, a couple little sections, but you, you talk about how you can't really substitute. Like you say, um, nothing that we do 
No amount of toys we buy or quality time or special training we give our children can compensate for the freedom we take away. The things that children learn through their own initiatives in free play cannot be taught in other ways. And, and you echo that sort of um, sort of often, you know, that is, this specifically says there is a play is nature's way of teaching children how to solve their own problems, control their impulses, modulate their emotions, see from others perspectives, negotiate differences, get along with others as equals. There is no substitute for play as a means of learning these skills that cannot be taught in school. So um, maybe we could talk about that for a minute, which is um, how, how did we come to substitute what really works for things that don't really work and are also a lot more expensive and difficult to manage? Yeah, I mean, so, so this is a change that, um, that I've observed in our culture over the over my adult life, um, you know, I think that by, I think that the default condition um, when I was a kid and for some time after that was, uh, you know, kids, you send kids out to play, <laughs> you know, you want them mm -hmm. out of the house, get out of the house, you know, <laughs> um, and, um, and I think a number, several things changed uh, that, um, that gradually changed that, you um, uh, one was that uh, in the 1980s, there were a couple of very celebrated cases of, um, of, children, um, of children being um, kidnapped. And, um, and this got into the popular press and, uh, and we began to hear warnings about the dangers of children being out there on their own. Uh, of course, there always were dangers, but they weren't necessarily publicized. And, and the danger, you know, these, these kinds of terrible events that we are all so afraid of are very, very rare, extremely rare. You know, of course, you can get hit by lightning, all kinds of things can happen. But when this happened and it got into the press, it became kind of a cause, a national cause. And so you had on milk cartons, you had pictures of missing children. And so you'd be eating your morning breakfast cereal and looking at these missing children on the milk carton and saying, oh my God, that could be my child. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then you began to hear, I remember when you first, we first began to hear on um, the radio, a public service announcements, do you know you, where your child is? Uh, as if you are a negligent parent, if you don't. And so we began to have those warnings because of the fear of dangers out there. And that fear exploded. I mean, it became, it be, and, and this sense, this almost moral sense that if you're not watching your child or have somebody watch your child all the time, it means you're a negligent parent. And even began to be, get into the kind of legal system where you might have your child taken away mm -hmm. if, if your young child was out there by themselves without adults. So what previously was normal child rearing uh, suddenly became um, immoral <laughs> and uh, possibly illegal. So, that's, uh, so that occurred. And then the other thing that occurred and this again was kind of in the 1980s, we began to have this um, over concern about schooling. And we always had, 
school, um, but school was just not the big deal that it became beginning around the 1980s, um, late 1980s in particular. Um, when I was in elementary school, <coughs> excuse me, in the 1950s, um, there was no homework for elementary school kids. Once in a while, we might be asked to write a story at home or a poem, something fun like that, that we would bring in. But we didn't log books and worksheets back and forth. When we were home, we were home. And even during school, we had plenty of opportunity to play. Um, the, I, don't, I can't say for sure for all the grades I was in, but I remember very well fifth and sixth grade. At that time, sixth grade was part of elementary school. Um, we had uh, six hour school days, but, but um, two of those hours were outdoors playing. We had a half hour recess in the middle of the morning, a half hour recess in the middle of the afternoon, a full hour of lunch. Some people went home for lunch, they walked home for lunch, um, but most of us carried a little bag lunch and spent most of that time playing outdoors. And during those times of play, um, I, I, I can't say for sure, but I don't recall teachers watching us. We played in whatever ways we wanted to play. We had snowball fights, we built forts. We, at that time, you know, all boys carried jackknives and we played with knives, you know, various, oh. various kinds of knife throwing uh -huh. games. We didn't throw them at one another. <laughs> we threw, you know, we threw them at trees. We played, there were various kinds of games you'd play with knives. So the wow. uh, you would the not do that today. <laughs> so even at school, the expectation was children can manage themselves. You don't have to be watching them every minute. And um, and there was also not this expectation that children should be able to sit in their seats for hours on end doing tedious schoolwork. The the way the the recesses were were sat and the lunch hours, we were never in our seats for more than an hour at a time. Wow. And so that changed in ways that really are not normal for children. It's not normal for children to be sitting in their seats for, for more than an hour at a time. Even an hour is stretching it. And so now we have this, you know, we have this school became so all important and all the propaganda was about the importance of school. And parents, of course, fell for this. And um, so the pressure on children to do more schoolwork. And then, well, if school is good for children, then more school must be better for children and more school-like activities outside of school must be better for children. So this combination of we need to watch our kids all the time and more schooling, whether it's school in school or school outside of school, more adult direction, more adult teaching, more adult control, this is good for children. That became the message that everybody kept hearing. And so instead of just sending our kids out to play, increasingly we would enroll them in some kind of adult directed sports or in some kind of karate classes or this or that and the belief that this is good for children. And, and if, we were, if, if they were getting less free play outdoors, we would rationalize it by saying, well, they're getting exercise in these adult directed sports that they're getting. You know, but let me explain the difference because there's a, the, there's a huge difference between an adult directed sporting activity and going out and creating your own play. And the biggest difference, of course, is simply that when you're creating your own play, you are creating your own play. You are creating something. You are doing something. You're taking initiative. Yeah. You're doing something creative. You're solving your own problems. 
I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. So for example, I, in some of the places, I think even in my book, Free to Learn, I describe the difference between an old-fashioned pickup game of baseball, the way we used to play when I was a kid, and a Little League game. So in the old-fashioned pickup game, which is the way children traditionally have always played until recent times, not necessarily at baseball, but whatever it is they're playing at, you go, you go outdoors, there's a bunch of other kids out there. You go, if it's baseball, you go to the vacant lot. It's not a manicured field. You have to figure out how you're going to set up the bases. Uh, there's a kind of a ragtag bunch of kids there of various ages and various abilities, and you have to choose teams, figure out how you're going to play. There's no umpire to call balls and strikes. You're going to have to figure out how to do that. You're, you're going to have to figure out what's fair and foul. And you make up the teams as fair as possible. You don't have 18 players, so you figure out ways of doing this. Maybe one person catches for both teams, or there's some people who play out in the outfield for both teams. Not everybody has a bat and a ball. You're sharing things. You share gloves. Not everybody has that. So imagine what's going on here, all this negotiation, all this planning, all this give and take about, uh, you know, 
I want to pitch, but you want to pitch. Well, okay, so we'll take turns pitching. We're going to, you know, we have to, you, the biggest lesson that you learn is that you have to keep your playmates happy or they're going to go home. And that, and your playmates include the people on the other team too. It's just arbitrary who's on which team. So you're learning how to negotiate. You're learning how to pay attention to whether your colleagues, your playmates are happy or not. You're learning how to get along with people. You're learning how to solve your own problems. And and all of these things are way more important than baseball, right? I mean, and no matter what you're playing, you're learning these things, these extraordinarily important life skills. When you go out to play Little League Baseball, maybe it's a good place to learn how to bunt or to slide into second base or to throw a curveball, which you shouldn't be doing anyway if you're under the age of 14 because it's bad for your shoulder. But you are uh, you are not learning these other things because the coach and the referee, they're, they're taking care of all this other stuff for you. The field is laid out. You don't have any real problems to solve. You're just told what to do, just like you are in school. And so children are growing up more and more in situations where they're always being told what to do. Their problems are being solved for them rather than they're having to figure out how to solve the problems themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the fundamental problem. And in addition, the truth of the matter is, even in terms of exercise, there's been research that shows when children are in adult-directed sports, they're actually getting less exercise than when they're playing out there on their own. You don't have, when you're an adult director sport, you're spending a lot of time just sitting (laughs) and listening, sitting on the sidelines, waiting for your turn and so on and so forth. Kids playing on their own, even, even when, even when your team is up, you might be playing a side game of tag, you know, you might be doing all kinds of other things. You're active, you're, you're pushing, you're, because that's the nature of children. You're, you don't want to just sit there and wait. So that's, so the, even in terms of exercise, um, the evidence is you're getting more exercise. There's one other thing I also want to make about the point I want to make about the difference between adult-directed sports and child, um, child children's free play. And that's that there's actually data. We, we think it's safer for children to be in adult-directed activities than, in when, than when they're playing on their own. The truth of the matter is there's actual research showing that the rate of serious injuries is greater for children in adult-directed sports than it is for when children are just playing on their own. The reason for that is that when they're in adult-directed sports, the emphasis is on winning. Mm-hmm. And, and you feel like you've got, you've got to try to win no matter how much that shoulder is hurting or no matter how much you're, you're um, uh, you, and, and you slide hard into second base because that's what the coach tells you to do. And you might injure the second baseman by doing that. When you're playing on your own, you don't hurt yourself, you know, starts to hurt. You say, all right, I'm easing up or I'm going home now or, you know, or let's uh, let me change different position. You're not overusing particular muscles the way you do when you're striving to win. And when that adrenaline is high because you're so so oriented towards winning and pleasing the coach and pleasing your teammates and getting that trophy and all of that, you are pushing your body in ways that your body really shouldn't be pushed. When you are playing, you're pushing your body in ways that are fun and enjoyable, but you're varying it. You're not doing the same thing all the time and you're actually getting better conditioning as a result of that. And one of the things you say is because kids are intrinsically motivated to continue to play, 
They don't want to right. hurt anybody else, right? Because then exactly. we've, we've all seen the situation where then that kid is crying and they're hurt and they have to quit. And that's right. I mean, if, tools, if, yeah, everything that you've laid out now is upended because someone had to leave. The greatest uh, freedom in play, I often say, is the freedom to quit. And um, that's what makes play the most democratic of activities, because if, if you and I are kids and we're playing together, I've got to listen to you. I've got to compromise with you. Are you? You'll say, oh, I hear my mom calling. I'm going home now. Right. And so, the, uh, you know, if I want to play with you, I've got to I can't just have it my way all the time. And that's an extraordinarily important lesson that children learn when they're playing with other children with no adult around. Yeah. And so what parents, I think, can get from all of these things that you're saying and from your book is that play seems frivolous. It seems like a waste of time. It seems like a time filler. Um, and yet play is actually hard. And uh, you talk about that in your book, Sam, but it, it's just so layered, all of the things that are happening during play. I even thought about, you know, when I try and enter into play with my kids, it's hard. You know, when you really try and do it and you're trying to pretend and make up these right. things, I, I can't, I'm not as good as it, at it as they are. You know, right. there's, there's a lot to it. It's so worthy. Um, I have found it takes a little bit of humbleness to step back and to say right. you know, what their bodies are driving them to do um, is is holds worth and and in and most of the time is more worthy than whatever I could swoop in and say, you know, let's do this. And so our parenting journey has been one of just stepping back, you know, if they're engaged right. in something, I'm not going to come in and say it's time to do math, you know, just let it let it ride out. So. Um, I think you just laid out so many deep, um, deep skills and lifelong skills that kids can learn through play. You talk about something that surprised me in your book uh, was a study that kids prefer um, outdoor play with friends um, over video games. And, and I have seen that in our own family. You know, um, our kids don't want to go out and play, but as soon as there's friends involved, they absolutely want to go. But I was surprised that so many kids would pick outdoor play over video games. Do you think parents are surprised when, when they hear those statistics? Yeah. Um, so this was a study done uh, a while ago. At the time, it was a study done shortly before I wrote the, my book. Um, and it was a study in which so the, all the kids that were surveyed had computers because the survey was done over the computer. And, um, and the question was, if right now you had the opportunity to go out and play with your friends in the park or play your favorite video game, which would you prefer? And I don't remember the exact data, but something like 85% of them said they would prefer to go out and play with their friends in the park, but that wasn't possible. And I think that's still true today. I think that... Um, you might say that there are some kids who have had so little opportunity to play outdoors with other kids that they might not even know exactly what that means. And maybe there would be less of an inclination to say that because they don't, they can't quite fathom <laughs> what it would be. Um, but I, uh, my experience is from, um, fr from observing kids at, um, at uh, democratic schools where they can do whatever they want in the school. They're in charge of their own day, their own activities. And there's an age mixed group of kids in these kinds of schools. This is like the Sudbury Valley School and other schools that are modeled after it. Um, and what is regularly observed is that 
yeah, the kids do a lot of computer play as well. They should. We live in the computer age and, and these are valuable skills and the games are getting more and more interesting all the time. And there's a lot of learning that occurs through those games. But they're also, most of them are also playing outdoors a lot. They they're get a pretty good balance. Um, and so the, and so I think the different, I think the reason there's always kids outdoors is, is it because there are other kids. The, the most important thing for kids in order to play is the presence of other kids. Uh, if you send your child out alone to play, the child is going to pretty quickly get bored. Not all children, but most children are going to pretty quickly get bored. They want to play with other children. They're not, um, I, don't, I don't think, I, you know, not everybody agrees with me, but I don't think that we have a strong basic love of nature. I think it's more of an acquired taste. Children yeah. learn to love nature because they're out there playing in nature and they're out there playing in nature if there are other kids to play with out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, uh, and so if you grow up playing outdoors, you begin to appreciate the, the, the trees to climb in, the, 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 the river to swim in or the, oh, the swimming pool to swim in and, and all the stones to throw and all the things out there that are great playthings. Uh, but, but it's boring for most kids to play alone. They're not learning those skills that are so, those social skills that are so important and that they're driven by natural selection to play with other kids because those social skills are so important. So I think that I think that the primary factor is that we need to figure out for this day and age how to arrange the opportunities. It used to be just omnipresent for children to go outdoors and find other children to play with right. without adult intervention because they don't want adult intervention. They don't want adults controlling what they're doing. They, the, the natural selection has given children the appropriate understanding that they've got to learn to take control of their own life. And the only way they're going to do that is by getting away from controlling adults. <laughs> so right. we, have to, we have to figure out how to compensate. We're not going to immediately go back to the 1950s world where I was a kid, where every parent is just sending their kids outdoors. So you go outdoors and every, all the other kids in the neighborhood are out there because their parents sent them outdoors. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Uh, so, but so how do we so how do we solve that problem? And that's one of the things. Actually, you said that you've you've interviewed Lenore, but Lenore and I are working on that through the Let Grow organization yeah. and various other ways on finding ways to bring kids together on a regular basis without adult intervention in what they're doing. Right, and we've done it. So we do it sort of on a small scale, which is, you know, since our kids have been small. Um, you know, we have a group of seven or eight families that are like-minded and, you know, you get together and you go to the park and you're going to be there for several hours and, and the moms just kind of, they're there, you know, but, right. but they're not intervening in the kids, in the kids play and they have these experiences and, um, you know, it's, but it is different. I remember as a child, my childhood really was a lot like yours. I mean, we played pickup games at the park, you know, you're the only outfielder. And so you have to run a whole lot more, or, right. you know, this tree is the base and that, you know, stone is the base. And, um, I remember right. that the mom across the street in the summer would lock her doors 
and she had these four kids, you know, and so they were out, you know, all day. I, I don't even know if she fed them lunch. I mean, they were, just, uh-huh. they were like, yeah, but, and so, and so as a mom now, that seems kind of ideal, right? I mean, she had all sorts of time to get right. things done and clean and prepare. Yeah. Who knows what right. she was doing in there all day. You know, she's got these four kids and she's got this quiet house. Um, right. So, it, so what I am finding is that it takes more effort um, to make it happen, but the effort really feels worth it. I mean, my house is maybe not as clean as that mom's would have been. Um, but I'm getting a lot out of it too, from the fresh air and the relationships. And, um, so for our family, that's, that's sort of what we're finding works to get the kids, the outdoor play with their friends. I, it was impactful for me to read that study because as a parent, you feel like, oh, they probably just rather be home playing video games. You know, you feel like you're kind of dragging them around, Um, Mm -hmm. but I was glad to learn that, you know, and I see it, they light up, they light up with their friends. They always want to go, you know, if their friends are going to be there, you you talked about, you talked about video games for a minute and we're in this computer age. And so one of the things I liked that you talked about in your book, um, where that video games are serving are sort of serving this play purpose and also this purpose, um, where adults aren't directing everything and kids get to have a little bit of autonomy. I think that's important for parents to hear. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your right. pro video game? Yeah. And pro balance, pro balance. Yeah. And I like that. I think that's important. Right. Well, mm-hmm. well, I think that, you know, we, we, um, we adults uh, tend to villainize video games. We tend to think that they're, you know, but this is uh, this is something that's happened throughout history. Whenever there's some kind of new technology, new way of playing, new 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 activities, new pastimes, if they're pastimes, um, the older generation is always skeptical about it. Always believes uh, this is this is going to be the ruination of the next generation of people. And so, um, at some point, you know, I used, I'm not a video game player myself, although my son who kind of grew up at the time when, um, when, when the, de- the desktop computer was not really quite there, but you could buy a kit and make your computer, which he did. And so he kind of grew up, uh, and still plays video games as a, as a middle-aged adult. Uh, but the, but I never, I've tried it and they're too hard for me. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I don't enjoy them. I, I, I'm beginning to think I ought to enjoy them. There's more and more evidence that playing video games forestalls the, the mental decline that occurs in old age, um, because they are so cognitively challenging in so many ways there. So uh, at some point a few years ago, because I was constantly asked, I, I, I would be giving talks to parents and groups of educators and so on about the value of play. And my focus was primarily on outdoor play as we've been talking about here. And normally the first question would be, well, what about video games? Um, And the implication would be that, and oftentimes people would say, but of course what you haven't mentioned is the big problem right now is video games. Video games are, are seducing children. They're addicted to, to video games. They're not going outdoors because of video games and so on and so forth. And so, and, and I didn't exactly know how to answer that question. Uh, so what I did was I um, decided, well, let me look into the research on video games. What do we actually know about it? Aside, you know, you can, you can support anything you want with a case example. You can, you know, at that time there was some 
young man in South Korea, I think it was, who had played a video game for two weeks straight and died, you know? So you get that kind of a scare story in and you say, oh my God, if my child plays video games, he's going to get addicted and he's going to go without eating or, or sleeping or drinking water and he's going to die. You know, these, this is a, so you can't make your judgments on that. You kind of have to look at, well, what do we actually know over, overall about video games? So I started this uh, venture into video games by Googling uh, harmful effects of video games uh, and coming came up, you know, with a with a list, you know, a lot of video games are violent and so they cause violence in young people. Uh, video games are the, a major cause of obesity among our children. The video games are socially isolating and so children are not learning how to make friends and have friends. Um, video games uh, stunt the mind, they kill the intellect, they're dumbing us all down. Um, and so on and so forth. And I ended up, I, I think I started off uh, the blog article I wrote, the first one I wrote with some statement like, well, based on my Googling, video games are the cause of all the maladies of adolescence with the possible exception of acne. And then I, <laughs> and then I went through the list and I said, so what, what do we know about the evidence for this? And so it turns out when you actually look at the research, it turns out there's a lot of research more now than there was then, a lot of research on video play that simply doesn't support these horror stories that we, always, that we keep reading about. First of all, there's still to this date, there's no evidence whatsoever that playing violent video games causes real world violence. Those studies that tend to show a relationship to aggression, it's fake aggression, it's play aggression in the laboratory that increases. There's no, the, there have been some well done studies looking at our kids who play violent video games, are they more likely to be violent in the real world? And every study that's been done of that sort is negative, they're not. <laughs> um, you know, there were reports at that time that, um, you know, one of the school shooters was somebody who played violent video games. And so the assumption was, well, he became a school shooter because he played violent video games. Well, you stop and reflect. And if, if most kids are playing violent video games, most boys and young men are, most of them don't become school shooters. So the question becomes overall, if you look at all the school shooters, were they more likely to be playing violent video games than those who were not school shooters? Somebody actually did that study and found they were less likely to be playing violent video oh. games <laughs> than those who were school shooters. I don't think that playing violent video games necessarily reduces violence, but I think what the, really the, the basis for that result is people who become violent are often people who don't play anything. They're not playful people. Oh, sure. And so I often make the analogy that, you know, when I was a kid, we played cops and robbers with cat guns and, you know, I killed lots of cops <laughs> as a kid. But this was all pretend, you know. I didn't, I didn't become a cop killer, nor did any of my friends. And there's long been, there's a whole history of research on just watching violent movies cause violence in children. And, and the, over and over and over, the results are negative. <clears throat> Regarding the other issues, the cognitive, it turns out that, <clears throat> that uh, video games are the 
are the are build intelligence more so than anything else that killed children play. Their evidence is overwhelming. There are now literally many dozens, uh, probably even hundreds of studies that show that basic cognitive abilities are being stretched and exercised by these video games, the kinds of things that we measure in IQ. One of the initial observations was that kids who play a lot of video games have higher IQs than kids who don't. Now that could be a correlation. The video games are difficult, cognitively difficult, so maybe they attract people who are good at those kinds of skills. But then they began to do studies. You take people who don't play video games, largely this at the time these studies began, these were college women because it was hard to find college men who don't play video games. So you'd you take college women and those who are in the experimental group would be assigned to play a particular video game a certain number of hours a week for maybe five or six weeks. The others would be in a control group, they do something different. You test them on some kind of cognitive measure, IQ type tests before and after, and those who are playing the video games improve, significantly improve compared to the control group. So there's now, there's actually quite a number of review articles and academic journals of such, of such. there's more and more, uh, that's why I say there's more and more suggestions that um, people of my age, if you're beginning to feel like you're losing some of your memory ability and so on and so forth, not a bad idea to play video games. It'll help restore those cognitive abilities. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle 
at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. So I could I could go on and on through the list, but the um, the idea of addiction, the idea, so we kind of overuse the word addiction in our culture. We use it for things that we like to do. And sometimes we brag about being addicted. People say, oh, I'm addicted to my work. Or, you know, we, mm-hmm. people talk about being addicted to chocolate or being addicted to this and that. Things that we like, we, we tend to consume or we tend to in, engage ourselves in. Uh, and so, um, and so we tend to overuse that term. I think that there definitely are kids and adults who, uh, play video games or do other things online to an excess that even they recognize is interfering with other aspects of their life. And I think that is a problem, and, but that's a problem no matter what the activity is that you are engaged in that is interfering with other parts of your life. It happens that, uh, that today, the most common activity of that sort is video games. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not surprising. The video games are so varied. They're so interesting and challenging. They're so social these days. Kids are interacting with other kids socially. Uh, and they're always there. You can always go to it, you know. So, um, so it's a kind of an easy way to get involved in play, to be interacted with other people, and so on and so forth. And so, I I think it's quite understandable when a family says, "Well, let's make a rule in our family that we're going to all eat dinner together. We're going to do certain things together, and there should be certain times when all of us." the adults as well as the kids, we're not going to be on the computer, we're going to be together, we're going to be doing these other things. I think that's a perfectly reasonable kind of, of, of um, thing to do. And it's also, I have a, um, somebody I know who's a sort of a colleague at Boston College, um, who's a psychotherapist who specializes in treating people who have so-called uh, video game addiction who come to him because they've been recommended to go to him because they're, they, um, they seem to have this problem that they play video games more than is good for them. And the first thing he does when, uh, so somebody will come in, he says, and they'll say, uh, well, he'll ask them, well, so why are you here? And they'll say, well, you know, I play video games all the time. I'm just good for nothing and lazy. And everybody tells me I'm good for nothing and lazy because all I do is play video games and so on and so forth. And so then he'll ask them, well, so what is the game? What are, what are some of your favorite games? And they'll, they'll get into a conversation about the game. So this therapist is a gamer himself. He knows most of these games. And then he'll say, so what level are you at on that game? And the, and the young person will say, well, I'm on level 12 or whatever the level is and he was like wow that's amazing well we can rule out lazy you're not lazy if you were able to reach that that's a difficult game that takes work to get to that so let's rule out lazy now let's talk about addiction so what does what does it mean when you say you're addicted and they'll say well i i do this instead of other things and so on and so forth and i even recognize i should be spending more time on my schoolwork or my job or whatever it is that they're neglecting. And he'll say, well, so what you've got is a time management problem. (laughs) 
uh, let's get away from the word addiction. That's a that, that's a pathological term. You're not you're not chemically addicted to this thing the way you would be if you were on heroin or on nicotine or something like that. It's just that you're doing this thing because you like to do it and you're doing more of it than you want to do. And so you kind of bring it into the realm of normality. Um, so and then they go on and talk about how, you know, how to manage your time so that you're not spending so much time on video games, how you might set a timer, how you might give yourself, you know, and you work out rational strategies for doing that. So that's kind of, in some sense, and very quickly, my story about video games. Now, let me yeah. add one more thing, because I think most parents are not would be it would be valuable for most parents to know this there there's i said that there are quite a lot of studies that show beneficial effects of video play and that tend to um, run counter to the story that video play is causing all these harmful effects one of the most impressive studies in my view was a study done uh, three or four years ago um, the Columbia University School of Mental Health in collaboration with some universities in Europe conducted this worldwide study of, um, that involved children between the age of six and 11. And they looked at how many hours a week the kids were playing video games uh, based on the parents' assessment of how many hours a week they're playing video games. And then based on teachers' reports, for each of these children, they got data on how many friends the, the children, you know, how socially competent the child was based on teachers reports, how well, the, how bright the child seemed to be, how emotionally stable they seemed to be, and so on and so forth. On every single measure that they looked at, the kids who were playing at least five hours a week of video games were doing better than those who played less than five hours a week of video games on every single measure that they looked at. Now, to me, that's not surprising because in this day and age, if you're not playing at least five hours a week of video games, there's a pretty good chance you're not playing at all. <laughs> right. And there's a pretty good chance that you're kind of a social isolate because this is what the kids are talking about. This is what the kids interact about. This is what... So parents who are depriving their child, they say, they, they say, I'm not allowing my child to play video games, are in a sense depriving their child from being part of what today is the child's culture. And so I think that um, although yeah. there's good reason to say, let's figure out how to not to let video games take over our lives, there's also good reason to say, let's not prevent our children from playing these games. Right. And that is, I did get that out of your book. You talked about, you know, they uh, live in a computer age. And, yeah. and one of the things that you said was that, especially because kids don't have all this free play time, you know, and so much of their life is adult directed, that oftentimes this is the only outlet, you know, you talked about, in, you know, a certain year, you know, 90% of life was adult free, you know, there was, you know, I don't know what year that was, but you talk about that. And now adults are so um, enmeshed with right. what kids are doing, but not when they're playing the video games, right? They're just on their own. You know, they're, that's right. maybe the only time where they're getting to make their own decisions. And like you said, now you can socially interact um, online. And so right. it helped me to understand better kids' needs too, you know, and, and how right. they're adapting to fulfill the needs that they have. Um, right. 
and balancing that out with the culture that they're growing up in. So super interesting. So, so this is the, the podcast where Dr. Peter Gray recommends five hours plus of video games. A week. <laughs> I think, but I think families will find that very interesting. I think those are really good things to know because like you said, there's a lot of anti, anti-screen and we're just looking at balance and also remembering that the kids are growing up in a, in a culture that's filled with technology and they need to learn how to manage that. And um, right. I have so much else here. We're running out of time. I, you, you uh, answered the last question I'm going to ask you, but, but before I get to that, I just want to, um, I want to show your books here. I've got these five. Um, Free to Learn was the first one I read. Um, and the subtitle is phenomenal. Why unleashing the instinct to play will make our children happier more self-reliant and better students for life. What a subtitle, lifelong, who who wouldn't want that? Happier, more self-reliant, better students for life. And then these ones are newer. Um, These four, I love the size of them. I can throw them in my bag. Mother Nature's Pedagogy, Evidence That Self-Directed Education Works, How Children Acquire Academic Skills Without Formal Instruction, Fascinating, and The Harm of Coercive Schooling. So these are fantastic books. If people are interested in buying your books, in finding you, um, and I know you blog a lot, where uh, where should they go? Well, so I I do a blog for Psychology Today. Uh, You can find that the the title of the blog is... uh, is freedom to learn, and uh, but you can just Google Peter Gray Psychology Today. I um, I have about 200 essays now on that mm-hmm. blog over the years. Those uh, small books that you just showed are actually uh, collections of blog uh, essays that I had done, and they're published by the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And all the profits I don't get royalties from that. All the profits from purchase of those go to help support the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. So those books can be best purchased by um, by going to the website for ASDE, Alliance for Self-Directed Education, and purchasing them there. Okay. Uh, the um, Free to Learn, it's interesting, Free to Learn is, uh, you know, that I, uh, is, has sold more every year since it's been out than it did the previous year. And it's, wow. um, it's having a, it's, wow. it's continuing to be of, um, to be a major book, uh, I'm it's happy to say. I'm, I'm, it's very, uh, very relevant. And, and, um, and of course, that's, you know, you can buy that through Amazon or through any of the, any place that you normally would purchase books. So that's, um, I'm, I'm working on a, a new book. Um, Yay! Uh, <laughs> actually, there's, there's two more books that I really want to write, both of which are, are involve a lot of research, and I, I need to create the time to do them but the next book that i'm uh, the the book that i'm kind of working on now uh, has the tentative title of the uh, obsolescence of school you know we've uh, the thesis is that uh, you know school as we know it today arrived at a time in history that was very different from today and um and it served a particular set of purposes which are counterproductive to what we need today in people's development. Um, We need people who are creative. We need people who are innovative, who think outside of the box, who uh, we need people who can take initiative and so on and so forth. And schools were really developed to quash all that. 
And they were fairly effective in quashing all of that and creating, uh, quote, good citizens in the sense of people who would obey and follow and not rebel and so on and so forth. And, um, and, and then the question, and, and so the, uh, and I think we're actually beginning to evolve away from schools that's it's happening gradually as more and more people are leaving standard schools for homeschooling and other kinds with covid we've seen a huge change the, the most recent poll was done in may of this year and uh 19 of americans with school-age children were homeschooling wow and it was uh, huge that's an absolutely huge increase from what had for been for many years around three and a half percent homeschooling okay. so covid has because of covid many many families are have taken their child out of public schooling and are doing homeschooling or creating learning pods and doing all kinds of alternative things no doubt many of them will go back to sending their child to school if and when the threat of COVID <laughs> declines. But um, I hear from many who say we're staying with homeschooling. It's really working out great for us. I see my child blossoming. I see my child developing interests that they couldn't pursue in school. They're clearly learning a great deal. So I think we're on this kind of track. And I, I think we're also on a track where uh, the the so-called value of a college education is is being um, um, being put more in its place. We we kind of had reached a point where college education, the goal of college education, and getting your child into an elite college seemed to be the primary purpose of being a parent. That's <laughs> the careerist the, approach, the, right? Or, that's right, and so you're you're trying to run your life in a way that will run your child's life in a way that will get your child into a, into a fancy college. Well, there's more and more evidence now that, um, first of all, that all that isn't necessarily even necessary. The children who are going to go on to a fancy college get there anyway, in one way or another, <laughs> to wow. a large extent. Right. But the other thing, and I mean, I see kids going on to fancy colleges who didn't school at all, do school at all. They haven't done any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But they've developed real interests, and they had a real reason to want to go to that particular college, and they got themselves mm -hmm. in. But the other thing that's that I've done a couple of blog posts on, there is actually research showing that even in terms of traditional measures, like how much money are you earning at age 40, um, if you match for background, if you control for socioeconomic background and other variables like that, it doesn't matter what college you go to at all. Those kids who went to the local state college uh, are doing just as well as those who went to an Ivy League school when you control for background. I mean, of course, the, the usual data that you read is, well, Harvard students are making so much money. Well, what you don't recognize is Harvard students had a lot of money to begin with. They come from rich families. Yeah. If you come from a rich family, you're going to be rich, like, likely, you know. That, uh, uh, and so once you control for that, the advantage of a Harvard education disappears. So that's, that's the thing that most people don't know. The other thing that's happening is that as college becomes more and more expensive and as, as uh, also as um, the job market changes such that many college graduates can't get good jobs, um, there's a recognition that the kinds of jobs that, um, that can't be shipped overseas are often jobs that don't require a college education. And more and more companies are realizing 
that college doesn't really train people to do what they want people to do in their industry or their company anyway. So they're better off training them themselves with an apprenticeship program. So there's more and more apprenticeships. And I, I think apprenticeships are going to become more common in the future than college education, that people are going to say, I'm really interested in this. And so I'm going to go and train myself in this by doing an apprenticeship in, in this field. And I think that's a very healthy trend. We'll have uh, people are people will instead of be spending all this money and getting yourself in debt, you'll actually be earning a little bit of money as an apprentice as you're learning. And you're also finding out in a real and direct way, do I like this career? And if I don't, then it's time to try an apprenticeship in some other area. So I think yeah, the, before this, you're one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Before you're 100,000, I mean, yeah. think, of, think of people, for example, who decide for whatever reason, or maybe their parents decide for them that they want to be a doctor, right? And so mm -hmm. as things stand now, you, people are deciding they want to be a doctor and they're going to a four-year college where they learn nothing about being a doctor. They don't have any experience with doctoring or sick people. They're spending a huge amount of money. Then they're spending more money to go to medical school. And somewhere along the way at medical school, they're finally having hospital experiences. And at that point, it's a little late to learn that, oh, after all, I really don't like the life of a doctor. <laughs> I've spent all this money. And that's why we have a lot of unhappy doctors and unhappy lawyers and unhappy business executives. It, it's much more important to figure out what it is that you like to do and then try it in some fashion to yes. see if you really like to do you know before who, you start spending a lot of money on that. Yes. You know who talked about that a lot is John Taylor Gatto. You know, that's what yes. he said he did with his students was he would try and match them in apprenticeship programs right. where they would maybe go for free, you know, and an office would take that free work for two weeks and right. they would learn, do I like this or not like it? And right. He also said it, it only takes 50 hours to get to functional literacy at the right age and stage to where you could learn anything that you want to learn. And so that's one week of school, one and a half weeks of school, you know, at the right, right. Age stage. And so I hope, I hope this book, I would love to read this new book of yours. Um, and just, I mean, just knowing how influential your first free to learn, I think it, I always say it's a book that every parent should read every parent should read this book free to learn. There's only a couple books that I say that about, but this is one. Um, and, and you said there might be another book beyond that. Well, one? the other book would be a more of an academic book on, um, on play. There has not been a really good book for, for decades uh, uh, that, that is designed for the, um, for the public about really what play is, the role of play in human evolution, the various functions of play, not only for children, but for adults. Um, there was a book uh, many years ago that is still kind of the book about play called Homo Ludens, meaning man the player, but it was written really in the 1930s wow. by uh, a cultural historian and um, about the value of play in the development of human culture and so on and so forth. And um, I think it's time for a new Homo Ludens. And, the, uh, and so I, and the publishing company, the Publish Free to Learn is, has expressed interest in my doing a book like that. And so that's the, uh, that's the other book that I'm hoping that I can. Especially in seeing right. that, like you said, it's this long tail effect where 
they're selling more and more, more and more each year because it continues to be more and more needed. And um, I just sure would love, love to read those books. I really hope they happen. Um, so you have this in your book, and I don't know if you're going to say what's in the book, or if you're going to say something different, but can we end with a favorite outdoor childhood memory of yours? Yeah, so I think this is the one I describe in the book, and it is a, it is really a favorite childhood memory of mine. So I was, uh, I, I, when I was a kid, I wasn't addicted to video games because we didn't have video games. I was addicted to fishing. <laughs> I loved fishing. I would sometimes get school to fish. I would go fishing as much as I could, um, often, most often with my friends. But this particular memory that um, has stuck with me is um, I was probably 11 years old and, um, and sometimes I would get up early in the morning and go fishing before school. And when I did this, I was by myself. I couldn't get any of my friends to get up that early and go fishing before school. <laughs> so I'd bicycle down to this river and fish. And, I, and this particular memory I have, I was fishing, it was spring. Northern Minnesota, the snow was melting. So there's still some snow on the side, but it was a sunny morning. And I just remember being there and, and, and just really, maybe for the first time, seeing how beautiful the world is, how, how you know, seeing the trees and the sun and the snow on the bank, and, and feeling what I suppose, if I were a religious person, I might call it connection to God or as a, what, uh, what uh, some uh, humanistic psychologists would say, a peak experience, so where you sort of feel you're just connected to the universe and you kind of have this almost sort of mystical sense. And I think the point I was making when I, when, sometimes when I talk about this is that the fact that it was just me there allowed that to happen. If there had been an adult there, it wouldn't have happened. Just by virtue of the fact that that adult would have been bigger than me and some kind of a dominating figure, even if the adult was not trying to dominate, I don't think I would have had that experience. So sometimes when I give a talk, I'll ask um, the audience to think about you know, their own some some childhood memory of theirs that really stands out to them as um, an experience that um, was in some sense transformative to them or to, and and to jot it down and then I'll ask so for how many of you was there an adult in the picture and for most of them there was no adult in the picture so that I think this is a very common thing that these kinds of experiences that you have as a child that really stand out in your memory are experiences where there's no adult there dominating the picture <laughs> where, where you are there interacting yourself whether it's with nature or whether it's with other kids or whatever it is but very often it is with nature i think there is something about that kind of an experience that leads one to sort of feel this sort of connection to the to the larger universe yeah. well i just want to um, extend my profound gratitude for your book for your blog for your new books, for everything that you've put out into the world. I think that you have changed the world with your with with what you've shared. And um, there's 
there's never been a time I think that we need it more than now. Um, and so I just highly recommend Free to Learn. I think for every every family, it's a great one, good one to give it a baby shower because um, it's just so transformative. And thank you for joining me here. I really appreciate your time and really look forward to what uh, what's coming down the road. Thank you, Jenny. This has been this has been a great pleasure. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking